Welcome to the AI and Big Data Expo at the Rye here in Amsterdam and the third episode of this special C-suite podcast we're producing in partnership with Xfluency, the AI-driven translation and localization system. We're interviewing more of the key speakers from Xfluency stand to find out how AI is transforming our present and shaping our future. I'm your host, Graham Barrett. Hope you enjoy the show. I'm here now with Evan Reddington, Head of Strategy for AI-Powered Operations at Deloitte. Evan, nice to see you. You too, nice to see you. You've just spoken on the, on the panel session, which was called Building an Augmented Workforce. So how was that and what were the key points made? Actually, um, building an augmented workforce is exactly what I do with my clients, so uh, it was a good fit for me. <laughs> so what we're seeing a lot is, um, I work a lot in the public sector and we see that many of these organizations are struggling to uh, do what they would like to do for citizens with the amount of people that they have. Uh, these clients are coming into this question like, how do we use AI from an efficiency standpoint? Pretty much like, like most organizations, they're wondering, and, and like people in the audience are wondering, like so much, uh, how do we understand what will actually work for us and how can we do it in a secure way um, and how do we find out what, what will be the winning use cases for us that we should invest in. Um, so it was very interesting. If I were to summarize, I think a lot of the questions that came from the audience were, uh, were like, oh the speed is so high, um, should we be scared, uh, what happens uh, when we automate everything and I think uh, the panel offered some nuance there uh, where we do recognize the complexity that these technologies uh, bring alongside them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a bit different if you're talking about like out-of-the-box solutions like Microsoft is, um, is integrating Copilot. Uh, so that might be a bit more straightforward to implement, although you would need to bring your organization along to some certain level of AI literacy. Um, but if you're making these custom uh, machine learning solutions, there's just a world of complexity that comes with that, so it's not something that you can do in a day. So, yeah, that's what we talked about. Yeah. Well, no, it's interesting that you were talking about the feedback from the audience there, because if you think about what's in the news, it's all about, well, we're all going to lose our jobs because of AI, but is the reality slightly different, a little more nuanced than that? If you ask me that question, are we going to be automated away, uh, that kind of makes the assumption that uh, we're going to use AI to do everything we're doing now and then humans are, become irrelevant. While uh, what I'm seeing at, at my clients, so I can't speak for everything in, in every industry, is that we have a set amount of people in these organizations. Um, they're not necessarily meeting the service delivery that they would like to. So for example, citizens might have to wait several weeks uh, to get certain services. Um, so there's pretty well-defined um, way that we would like to spend humans' time if we didn't have to do kind of machine work. So I don't see that necessarily as a big threat for today or tomorrow. But then, of course, you can go into the sci-fi future where we can automate everything. Uh, I, I, I think that will be very complex to, uh, to rule out. But uh, let's say that did happen. <laughs> um, you could think of... Um, we're all working 40-hour weeks. Is that necessary? Will we go back, scale down, or uh, that could be an option? Yeah, yeah. And how do you think AI is going to change our working lives? Maybe over the short term rather than the long term. Well, um, I don't like it when people make these big declarations and know exactly what's going to happen in the next few years because we are seeing these 
big speeds and innovations and, and we're taking different turns every few months. But I'll talk about what I see today. Um, what I'm seeing is um, AI being used as a productivity strategy. If we have people, at, we're trying to achieve a certain, uh, delivering a certain service and we're not achieving that with the amount of people that we have now, how can we use AI to support these people to uh, deliver that service, let's say. And what's interesting today is that uh, we now have these foundational models, um, like uh, GPT-4, for example. Um, so we have, we're kind of democratizing the way that AI can be used because uh, until recently, you would you would have had needed massive amounts of data, large resources to train these models, and now we can basically use these foundations provided by big tech companies uh, and then fine-tune them for our own efforts. Uh, so I think that's an interesting thing. So I think that will accelerate AI adoption into like not necessarily tech companies. So what we will see, I think the most exciting things are uh, in public sector um, uh, will be like the, the text-related use cases, so document processing, text generation, um, but I also see probably personalization will be an interesting, interesting thing. I'm quite excited about the healthcare use cases also. I have a background in biomedical engineering, so I'm excited by that also. Um, but I think it, it really depends on the vision of the leadership of a company, like what are they going to invest in. But probably in, from a productivity standpoint, that will be, uh, that's what I see happening at the moment, yeah. Sure. I'd also love to ask you about, you sit on the board of Women in AI in the Netherlands, so what progress are you making in increasing female representation in AI and how much further do you think you need to go? Good question. <laughs> uh, we have some work to do there, to be <laughs> honest. Basing this off of World Economic Forum's reports, they make annual reports based on LinkedIn data. So in 2022, uh, we saw that 30% of AI talent uh, were female, and women's representation in high-level leadership roles, uh, like we're talking VP C-suite, uh, that drops a lot lower. So you're seeing uh, about 13%. Wow. Yeah, a very long way to go then. So yeah. what, what can be done? What work are you doing with women in AI? How are you trying to improve that situation? AI and machine learning models, um, they'll always be as non-biased as they are created. So um, the data that goes into them, but also maybe if, if the, the industry that's creating these AI models uh, is non-diverse, then uh, lots of stuff will be overlooked. And maybe negative side effects that can't be foreseen, they will also not be caught. And besides that, teams with diverse perspectives, they perform better, we've seen that, uh, and are better at challenging assumptions. If you're making a model that's impacting society as a whole, uh, it's better to have a team creating that and monitoring that that is representative of the group that's being impacted. And let's be honest, uh, there's a talent shortage in AI, so if there's a talent pool that's not being, uh, not being used, such as women, uh, we should be investing into uh, bringing those along. Yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense. I mean, the 13% um, stats that you just gave us, I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? And that really needs to, to go up dramatically. Yeah, yeah you, you see that um, uh, retention is an issue in, in the AI industry. Um, you see that there's a, there's a rise in, in women um, graduating from STEM uh, university courses and uh, entering the work workforce, but then you can see that retention is an issue and there's a drop, um, so you see it de declining as we go higher up into these uh, these organizations. 
So what can we do? Yeah, <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> so the things that we do with Women in AI, um, we try to improve perception and recognition and representation. Um, so we have this, uh, we partner with this uh, organization called Equals, um, and we do this role model campaign in, the, in Amsterdam. So we have these massive posters and we put women with really cool uh, jobs in tech and AI. Um, so that they're spread out through the whole city and people can see them, so they exist. Uh, we also do our Women in AI awards, so uh, these women get recognition and you know they get uh, a light sh shown on them. But we also have our mentorship program, so as I mentioned, retention is an issue, so we have different mentor-mentee uh, mentor relationships in all um, stages of a career, let's say. So we have students um, uh, who are being mentored by women who are like in their early phases of their career, but then there's also more senior women mentoring women that are struggling to find like what's the next step in my career. And we also have our Activate program, which is uh, we go to areas in Amsterdam at the moment where we don't see that many uh, students, like high school students, flowing into these STEM um, bachelors. Um, so what we do with them is we go and we, we take the kids and we do a workshop with them for the day. And uh, we were partnering with ING and, and, and Schiphol on that. So we'll, we bring them along to see like this real live uh, data science teams uh, with the aim to just um, show them that, you know, for you, this could also be possible. These are, these are schools in, in areas that are, let's say, have a lower socioeconomic position and um, so we would like to you know show these kids that they should also uh, see themselves in that position. We also have an uh, accelerate program which is like a startup incubator uh, so it's a way where we can um, support women that are uh, founders and um, so support them on their uh, entrepreneurial uh, journey and uh, what I personally focus on is our women in AI circles so we do monthly meetups uh, where women can meet each other. We usually do like a mini lecture or workshop, some, some type of uh, content, a panel, uh, and then there's networking afterwards. So it's just basically a place where we can meet each other and form partnerships uh, and, and be productive in that way. Uh, so that's what we do. And as far as progress, it's very difficult to say because the, the numbers always come uh, a bit later. It's not real-time data. But we have seen an increase in um, women in STEM. It's, it's also difficult, difficult to differentiate AI and, and tech in general. Yeah, so we've seen an, an increase of 1.6% of from 2015, which is, uh, outpaces the growth that we see outside of STEM. So at least that's an indicator that something, uh, something is changing. Um, yeah, let's be clear, these, the things that we're doing are kind of pragmatic solutions to larger syst systemic challenges. So it's, it's not an easy task. Well, it sounds like superb and vital work, to be honest. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for joining me on the podcast, Even Reddington. Thanks for having me. Joining me now is Michael van Lunsen, the product owner, credit risk model validation at yeah, ING. Yes, nice yes. to see you here today. Yeah, nice to be here. How are you enjoying the conference? It's very nice. I mean, it's uh, very nice to see like-minded people here. 
I also noticed that model validation is not something that most people here know about, so it was good to present that and to give some insights from a bank like ING. Well, that might be a good starting point then to actually define these terms for us because yes, yes. model risk and model validation. So explain those terms, please. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I, it will be difficult for me to, to really uh, turn it down in a couple of minutes, but I'll try my best. So we have a big part in the model life cycle. So model life cycle is basically the beginning of a model to the end of the model. And we are part of that process. So basically a model has been developed by ING on a local level or a global level. And for us, it's our job to determine where the key risks are in that model. So you can imagine a model has been developed in, what, two years, three years? And we go over a model from beginning to the end and everything that has to do with that model in a couple of months. And our goal is to see, okay, are there any key risks in this model uh, that we need to identify, that we need to tackle as a bank uh, to make the bank safer? Why is model validation so critical to a bank? You, you mentioned the safety aspect there. The safety, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it depends on where you are in a bank. So you can imagine a bank like ING has a lot of models, right? So And the, the scope of these models also varies quite a lot. So we have advanced analytics models who are very much related to machine learning, which we talked about today. But you can also imagine we have credit risk models related to the amount of capital that we need to hold. So it, it really depends on the domain. But for example, for us, the most important uh, thing is to make the bank safer. But you can also imagine an external regulator like the European Central Bank is also going to look at what we have performed, right? How safe we are as an organization. So it's also important to take a stakeholder like that into account when we're doing these validations. Can you, you do this on a day-to-day -day basis? How does this actually work in practice? Can you kind of put it into words? <laughs> yeah, well, it's difficult, but we have nine validation dimensions, as we call it. So we look at nine different aspects of a model, and that includes looking at the data. So how good is the data? So we dive into the data. We do data quality checks of our own. We look at the design of the model, so design choices, what type of features you have created, how you come to the outcome of a model. We look at the output, obviously, we look at how well is this model performing, is it, is it in line with our expectations, are you looking at the right metrics, things like that. We talk to the business side, so you can imagine a model has been designed with a specific purpose in mind, but does it align with the expectation of the business? We look at the limitations of a model. There, there's so much actually what we do. You can imagine some uh, models are designed with a certain business, business expertise in mind. So we need to challenge those models. Is the business expertise, is that in line with our expectation? And does it perform well? So we sometimes build an AI model just to check, does this model perform well? And uh, would an AI solution be better than this business experience? Well, we're here at the AI and Big Data Expo. Yeah. Talk, to, talk to me a little bit about AI and how that is aiding your work. It is uh, aiding our work in actually two aspects. So first things are model development using AI to make the bank better, right? So you can imagine for customer, customer interactions, so we want to target the right people. Uh, then you can use AI to target uh, specific customers uh, for uh, advertisement, for example. These are parts that are fall into non-regulatory space, so we have a little bit of freedom to also use AI to make our processes better, to make the bank better. From our perspective as model validation, we also use AI to challenge uh, the more standard models. Like I was talking before about rule-based systems, these are business expertise kind of models. We use AI to challenge these models to see how well they are performing and how well the design has been made, right? 
So there's two aspects of that. Yeah. And what are then the implications for things like KYC, know your customer, and fraud? Yeah, that's a very big topic. So in KYC, we have uh, there, there. That's a big space by itself. So you have anti-money laundering, you have fraud, you have anomaly detection models who look at uh, how suspicious each transaction can be compared to others. What is what is different from the rest, basically? We have rule-based systems as well because of the regulatory aspects related to KYC. And then we have AI systems who actually try to reduce the amount of false positives there. So you can imagine when you set a threshold with rule-based systems, there's a lot of transactions flagged. And we need to we only have limited resources to investigate these transactions, right? So we use AI systems to reduce the amounts of false positives there. So we only ha- need to look at the really suspicious cases there. Yeah, fascinating stuff and highly complex. But thank you so much, Michael van Lunsen, for bringing all that together. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Joining me now is Guy Dowers. Let's just start by giving us an introduction to At North and the services you provide. First of all, At North is a pan-Nordic uh, data center provider. And uh, on top of that, we have, uh, of course, we are active in all the uh, Nordic countries in Europe. So we build data centers for the highest performance computing and artificial intelligence, as well as we have built a whole stack of um, infrastructure as a service on top uh, to run AI and HPC applications uh, in the most sustainable way you can imagine. And what are the key advantages of the Nordic region for these data centers? So first of all is the the massive amount of renewable energy that is available there, but also the climate is ideal uh, for data centers that consume and run and consume and and produce a lot of uh, energy. So they are actually way more efficient than actually in other places in the world, in Central Europe, in the US, and that's why clients from all over the world are coming to Nordics to run their heavy workloads, their backend calculations like processing of large language models or AI applications or big simulations that come and run them in the Nordics. Well, that's fascinating. Can you tell us maybe some of the clients you have worked with and maybe some of the work you've undertaken for them? Are you allowed to divulge that? Yeah, uh, we can mention a couple. Others uh, don't want to be mentioned because they're for privacy reasons. Uh, but I can mention a couple. One of them is, uh, is a US company uh, called Tomorrow.io. They are an extremely fast weather forecasting company. They have also launched now recently uh, lots of satellites. So they, they collect data from the satellites from all over the world. They let them uh, calculate the data in, uh, in Nordics, in Iceland and in Sweden. And uh, so they then expose them the results of it, expose it back over APIs to applications all over the world, like uh, Uber or uh, airlines and so. Uh, so that's one example. Another example is uh, BMP Paribas. Um, one of the Europe's biggest banks. So they bring their massive um, uh, risk calculations and massive calculations to, uh, again, Sweden, um, uh, Iceland, uh, primarily to achieve their uh, sustainability objectives. So they were running it uh, previously in France, UK, uh, somewhere else in, uh, in Europe. But they have uh, abandoned that and brought these heavy workloads to, to, uh, to at North 
to uh, to help them really achieve primarily their their, their sustainability objectives, uh, but also to get more compute for the same uh, for the same money and uh, and to get more done uh, with the same uh, with the same uh, expansion. Yeah. Now, as we all know, there's an explosion of AI innovation at the moment. Can you just give us an idea of the? data, the time and the expenditure needed to kind of fuel all of this innovation? Well, everybody knows ChatGPT and the likes. Uh, there is a lot of um, uh, initiatives in the world of training and retraining uh, large language models and foundation models to really build generative AI. And it's an extremely promising new domain that uh, make companies, enterprises or uh, users way more efficient. So they bring first these large language models to calculate, so they are extremely complex mathematical models. Um, if you look at GPT-3, where uh, OpenAI has based uh, ChatGPT on, that alone, that takes like 10,000 GPUs for uh, weeks, months, to just calculate it once. And that is then calculated based on information that comes from the internet. But then when enterprises start to use this, they don't want to use internet data, they don't want to have the data from their own enterprise uh, exposed to others. So they want to run that then in a private cloud. So they want to set that up as a private environment. So they, they train then the models on their own data and they make their own language models out of it for their own use with their clients and, and uh, for their customer support. Healthcare companies are doing that, banks are doing that. So it's massive amount of data, massive amount of compute that needs to run, yeah, get the most out of it for the investment. Uh, but it's, a, it's a, like a rat race for, uh, for getting most models, most intelligent models uh, with, uh, with all the newest data and the most privacy data that comes, uh, comes uh, to us. Yeah. And sure, I guess as the tools become you know, more sophisticated, then the data needed it just goes up and up and up. So where does this all end and how can it be managed sustainably? Well, that is the point, do that sustainably, because um, uh, yeah, people go to just the public cloud and run it. That's good when you have a small test and when you have no idea where it's going to end uh, to try it out. But when it becomes very, uh, yeah, very massive uh, calculations, uh, A, the, the, the public cloud is too expensive, but also, where is it running the public cloud? You actually don't know. It's like uh, Amazon, Azure, whoever decides where it runs. It runs in the data centers where they are. It's, uh, it's uh, somewhere else in, in the world. So it's not done in the most sustainable way, uh, but it's also not done in the most economical way. So and that's what uh, we try to achieve, is that uh, our clients wants to, wants to get the most out of it but wants also to do it in a sustainable way so that they don't uh, jeopardize the climate and uh, don't jeopardize the future for our kids and, uh, and ourselves. Well, Guy, that was, that was absolutely fascinating. Enjoy your time here at the conference. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm here with Vidya Renade, who's the Digital Director, Friesland Campina. Nice to see you, Vidya. Same here. Thank you. Now, you've just given a presentation on a multi-horizon approach to data and analytics. What are the three horizons? Yeah, so when you think about three horizons, probably everybody has heard in the context of analytics about uh, three analytics horizons, which are uh, descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive. So what I thought was there's a similar sort of analogy here, slightly different, but similar, uh, on you know how you could look at data in three horizons as well. And the three horizons for data are essentially using the, your data to maximum today, whatever data exists today. If you look a bit, little bit out, one to three years down the line, then you want to 
probably start thinking about, hey, you know, what are the new data sources that I could make available? And this could be existing data sources, but just in bad quality or bad shape. So the next horizon is actually working on those data sets and making them useful over that horizon. And even beyond that, if you think about it, it's all about creating data by systematically digitizing your processes. So there's plenty of processes today in businesses which, I mean, are digitized, you know, maybe they don't happen on pen and paper, but they actually are not systematically collecting their data. So if you're looking at a horizon which maybe is around two to five years out, you want to actually start thinking about, hey, what are the data sources that I want to create for my next foundation for digital transformation? Okay, so the obvious follow-up question is why? Why is it important to work on these three horizons? Typically, I think people working in data field probably know that, but maybe appreciate it less in their day-to-day -day work, is if you think about the second horizon, which is all about improving data quality, it does not happen overnight. You know, you need to get activate the organization, you need to activate the leadership, uh, you have to sort of uh, provide transparency into where the data quality is bad, maybe even prioritize where you want to improve data quality. So you've got to invest a lot of time of the organization in doing that, and you have to activate all this machinery. So if you want to benefit one or three years out, you actually have to start today with it. Right? So that's with respect to the second horizon. And the third horizon is equally well, you know, if you want to create a good set of data, good quality data, you have to start collecting it for some time, right? So you, once again, you got to start now. So the crux of my message was, if you want to do digital transformation today and for the future, focus on the data set, not just for today, but for also for the future. Then I guess you've got to bring these three horizons together, don't you? So what are the challenges to doing that? So one thing that I typically observe, and it's certainly true in our organization, is this very often you need three different kind of skills to work on the three horizons. So if you think about the first horizon, you, you're looking at the classical DNA kind of uh, resources. So you're looking at cloud engineers, data engineers, data modelers, data scientists, you know, these kind of people. And that is what people think about when they think about data analytics today, right? I mean, this, this by far is the composition of DNA teams as well. Now, if you want to work on the next horizon, you've got to think about digitizing processes, which actually is a more traditional IT skill, but it's not necessarily available in the same organization. And the third bit, which is all about uh, creating data for the future, I mean, we tend to use things like Power Platform, which is kind of a very low-code, easy way to digitize your smaller processes. And once again, that's a completely different skill, which is not really available within the DNA community. So I think the biggest problem you have probably is co-location of all these skills. And we were fortunate that we could do it in our organization because we started from scratch with our digital unit. But in many other organizations, that's not the case. You know, very often you just have the DNA, DNA people involved. Even if you look into the IT organizations, they are actually also siloed in a very similar way. So in IT as well, you've got three different departments and you've got to actually work with three different departments if you want to address three different issues. And you touched on it there, but what is your approach to, to all of this at Friesland Campina? Yeah, I mean, as I, t as I told you, we were fortunate enough to actually start from scratch. So we actually shaped our digital unit you know, kind of thinking about these three horizons and how we want to work in the future. So for us, it was a little bit less of a challenge. So we actually managed to get all the people involved and now in my team, we have all these three competencies that we need. Uh, that's one way of solving, but maybe I'm curious to hear, maybe there are other, other yeah, ways yeah. of solving that people have taken, you know, in other companies. Uh, I, I don't know of any, but I'm pretty sure there are some. Maybe even the IT organization is more sort of 
together in in a sense and not as siloed as yeah. in maybe other institution you know so maybe that's another way of uh, yeah solving. yeah well i guess this is what this event is about isn't it it's about listening Getting to, to other approaches exactly. you know discussing them um just a final question for you video what outcomes have you seen um at freezing campina and what more do you hope to achieve i mean of course we you know when we started our digital journey we started with the ambition that we want to improve uh, speed and efficiency of our r&d organization and that's exactly what we've been working on so we've actually over the course of past 3 years that's when we approximately started formally our digital journey uh, we are digitizing actually a couple of processes you know working on the second horizon but we have also taken existing datasets and we have unlocked them and we have made available to the people so i think there's a few decisions that now can happen at a much better speed you know which is what we wanted to do uh there's a few things which were laborious like extracting insight from data was laborious we've simplified that through our data transformation etl and bi stack so we are essentially working towards the set goal that we set about for ourselves which is to basically increase the speed and efficiency of our r&d and we are well on course to do that yeah yeah well good luck with uh, achieving those goals vidya ranade thank you very much thank you so much for having me here cheers Okay, I'm here with Rowan van Dongen, consultant manufacturing analytics at Aviva Select Benelux. Rowan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it's really yeah. nice to meet you. And uh, I know you're giving a presentation here about sustainable operations, and you're having, you know, chats with your clients, you know, 24/7. I, I imagine, are they talking to you about sustainability? Is, is that one of their real drivers? Yeah, that's a very big driver because uh, sustainability is a hot topic as of today. Of course, the Paris Agreement, that kind of stuff. Uh, companies want to save their energy, uh, save money, and uh, that kind of stuff. So it's a really important question nowadays, and that's uh, one of the reasons I'm going to uh, hold this presentation tomorrow. What what else are they trying to achieve? That they'll come to you. Obviously, they've got ob- objectives that they want to achieve. How do you help them achieve it? Well, we first go to the, the to the bottom line of the question, right? Because uh, you want to achieve something, but in order to achieve something, you have some questions, you have some KPIs, some key performance indicators that are important for these customers. Because you really need to know what kind of uh, ideas a company has in order to uh, support them in their way of sustainable uh, operations. What can you tell us about analytics for industry? I know that's a big part of your operations. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, Analytics for Industry is a company I work for and we are basically a company uh, that supports or um facilitates manufacturing companies in order to become more sustainable. So in order to become more sustainable, we deliver dashboarding and uh, try to have a better look on the data because the data sets need to be of good quality. Uh, you have uh, a good quality data and based on that you can move forward to these uh, KPIs of sustainable operations. Okay. So it's all about the sustainability picture and this is all playing in to yeah. the same thing and what you want to achieve for your clients. Yeah. I mean, the obvious question is how do you do it? Yeah. <laughs> As analytics for industry, we've created a, a standardized energy monitoring system. So this is basically a, a full-blown package with uh, four sets of dashboards that has some insights in how many energy you consumed per batch, per product, uh, per line, uh, per asset, but also per work order. It's it's very important for different organizations because you have the process data, the sensor data, but you also have the information about relational data and those two needs to be contextualized to each other. and those contextualization is happening before dashboards and that's something we we uh, try to to deliver to the customers can you give us a kind of live example to bring this to life a little bit with the client that you're working with at the moment at the moment i'm working with a food manufacturer here in the netherlands 
and uh, they have basically two kind of questions. One question is about overall equipment effectiveness, so how can I uh, improve my uh, operation by availability, uh, performance of my assets, but also the quality of my products. But also the other side of the story is energy monitoring. They really want an energy monitoring solution to be able to meet their energy goals. For example, they want to save 2% of gigajoules per milk because they uh, try to save more money on the input side of the, of the factory, okay. for example. We're here at the AI and Big Data Expo, so what about AI? What role is that playing um, in the conversations you're having with these clients? <laughs> That's a very good question because AI is uh, often being uh, picked at, at the conversation because AI is a buzzword, so to say. Let's call it just a buzzword. Uh, people really want to have uh, AI, they want to predict their maintenance, they want to predict their energy consumption over the next decade. But let's be honest, but let's be realistic. AI can be something uh, that can, can be done without data. You need to start somewhere, you need to uh, have a fundament of your operations, you have to uh, have ownership of your data, you need to know what you're analyzing and where it's coming from. And that's something the energy monitoring solution for manufacturing we offer is a, a begin, a starting point for this journey, for this data journey of this customer. And based on the starting point, we facilitate customers to be able to move forward in this data journey and, and in the future they will reach these utopia, for example, yeah. this utopia of, uh, of predicting their, uh, uh, their energy consumption. So you've almost got to go backwards before you go forwards, is that yeah. the kind of message you're trying to get across? That's really the message I'm going to give you in this podcast as well. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Ryan van Dongen, thanks so very much for joining me on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for your insights. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here now with Giuseppe Lenci, who is the Business Intelligence Specialist at Van Ord. Really nice to see you here today. Yeah, thank, thanks uh, for inviting uh, me and uh, actually the company to have a little bit of a, of a conversation about, uh, about this nice event that we're having today at Amsterdam about the different uh, you know good stuff that are be that is being shared and perhaps a little bit about what I just shared in the panel yeah yeah, yeah absolutely those are the great conversations happening here today and you mentioned your panel which was called making the most of data so what were some of the key points you made during that session yeah so uh, we, we were uh, meant to discuss a couple of topics that I would just say chunk in three parts one is about how um, we make a uh, data available for our business consumers and how to make most of the data. Touching one point, which is data democratization uh, and how data should be made available for people that are not tech aware. Uh, and what, what about IT? What, what roles do we have in, in the IT organization to enable that? Another one, uh, quite important, is how to break data silos that are currently existing in, in your siloed company which means uh, how currently you connect your source systems, how you um, process that data into a consumable format for the end user, and what about the silos that you are creating right now in your company. And the third element, which is uh, also important there, is um, how the data silos and data democratization have a saying on how every company should be pursuing uh, you know, uh, an energy transition and actually uh, collaborating towards that uh, global purpose that we have. So we, we touched on those three elements and uh, we had a, a, a quite interesting contender which is Food Locker and Van Ord. So our company is about ships and we have 108 of them. Uh, if you don't know about Van Ord, just uh, Google the palms of Dubai and you'll find a big, that's, that's us, we uh, go with the ship, take sand and build uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we also uh, build uh, wind farms at the North Sea. So 
in a way we're collaborating towards this transition in, in a way that uh, we are making sure that every new element on energy is actually based on uh, on uh, helping the climate to uh, not be where it is right now and where it's heading, which yeah. is uh, quite bad. What about um, a data-driven culture? How do you create and nurture that? Can you give us yeah. some insights into that? So uh, one of the things that we have at Bonord is uh, called a data-driven marine ingenuity. Marine ingenuity is about the value that we create for our customers. And data-driven means a lot of uh, cultural behaviors that we're expecting you as a consumer to have. This um, implies, um, and, and I think uh, data-driven has been uh, just a hot topic uh, across time, uh, and right now it's shifting in a big way, uh, in the sense of the following. Uh, BI systems, business intelligence systems, are right now shifting into uh, another state, which is the augmented consumer way. Think about uh, things like uh, ChatGPT integrating into Microsoft uh, Power BI products, and ChatGPT actually being the developer for you. So you have now the ability to prompt, if you prompt well, uh, and actually get insights of that data. And that means a change in the behaviors and the culture that we should expect as you as a manager in order to query and get data. So uh, data-driven means uh, not only knowing how to uh, query your data prompted, but also uh, in, in these new terms means that uh, we need to make sure that uh, people are trained in a way that uh, they know what is a fact, what is a dimension, and uh, perhaps uh, tell them how to create proper context, proper questions towards uh, querying those uh, BI systems that we are providing. So data-driven touches a lot of points, and 80% is uh, the human t the part, and 20% the technology that we should be making available for this new environment. One of the things that we touched in the conversation was Okay, we have a lot of data pipelines, a uh, hundred of those uh, connecting to an ERP system or CRM and so on. But right now we have technologies that are bringing all the data into one lake. So it's not anymore that chief data officer is actually chief integrations officer. That's currently what we have been doing in the last 10 years, connecting systems and making a, a met, uh, you know, lakes to uh, create a relations on that. But it's more about, okay, if it's that not a problem anymore, integrating data, what is the problem now? How all that data, it's used. And now it's the time to think about how your company is going to evolve on the cultural aspects so that people that are not technically aware are able to get into the data in a properly fashion. I, I think we have a gigantic um, uh, leap to make, which is um, how do you set up a proper behavior, like say uh, agenda, to train the managers uh, how to be precise. If they spot data quality mistakes, raise the red flag. Number one element on data-driven behavior. Number two, if it says 53, why are you going right? You should go straight. There's <laughs> a factor of people just not you know, relying on their opinions. Uh, in that sense, um, yeah, we need to evolve in a way that uh, data now is accessible. Now, what about what about what you would do in the in the behavior part? Yeah. Final question for you. There's been a lot of discussions about LLMs, large language models, here yep. at the conference. How do you use those at Vanord? All right. So uh, the technology is uh, uh, enterprise made available, not there yet. So. If there is a company already doing that, that I think they went into the preferred channels of the main providers, call it ChatGPT. Uh, but if you go there, uh, one of the things that uh, we had a conversation with Microsoft, which is really inspiring, is that you have, you know, the infrastructure and how ChatGPT works is so massive that you cannot host it in your company. 
uh, only the data center of Microsoft. But what if you are allowed to actually have your own LLM on the company and train them? with the knowledge of your company in the context of an org. We take uh, the uh, knowledge that we have of 150 years for 108 ships and just uh, say, okay, based on this knowledge, let's train this um, LLM so that it makes uh, proper conclusions about atmosphere, about currents, about waves, about how to uh, create, uh, dredge the, uh, the sand or the soil from X to Y. Actually, uh, LLMs are going to be fastly at hand, and hopefully, we can go into the you know the preferred channel uh, because then people are enabled companies like Vanord to train their own LLMs, sourcing uh, you know all the infra from uh, huge uh, parties like Microsoft, and start to implement those as the real context for every user. Just imagine if I have you in, in one of our ships and you don't have a heck of a knowledge of what is that red button about. Well, then you will have an LLM that he gives you all the context and please don't touch it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think uh, we, we are in the verge of, uh, of, uh, of getting into that um, ecosystems in a more practical way for companies like us that are, we're not into data, we are into vessels. But we need to get into the, the new state, so I think LLMs will play, uh, will play a huge role in the next uh, upcoming years. And also because the main providers are moving so fast in productionizing this, that we need to keep up. Yeah, yeah, no, some really, real exciting possibilities there. So uh, thank you for taking me through that. And Giuseppe Lenci, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Uh, have a good one. Okay, joining me now is Gary Muddyman, president of Xfluency. Gary, it's really good to see you. Good to see you too, Graham. Yeah, just wondering, as we reach the end of the AI and Big Data Expo here in Amsterdam, what have been your impressions of the event? Well, as you won't be surprised to know, I've been to a lot of these sort of things over many years. Um, and it's amongst the best, actually, that I've attended, certainly in terms of our booth traffic has been extraordinarily high, particularly yesterday. So, yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Enjoyed it. What, what were you trying to get out of the event and, uh, you know, has it uh, met well, those expectations? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think two things, really. The, the first thing was to introduce ourselves uh, to the market and make more people aware of what Exfluency can do for them. But very much we're also here to learn. And uh, there's some big brains knocking around as I, you know, in various interactions I've had, you know, over the last couple of days as, as proven, really. And uh, really interesting. And I know I was very pleased that Yarrow's speech went down so well, particularly with this type of audience. Yeah. Yeah. What was the feedback on his speech? I was interested to know that. It was great. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, you know, we, we've, uh, I saw he was a bit of a rock star at the, uh, <laughs> at the uh, networking party last night. And, um, you know, his depth of knowledge and his experience in this sector over many years, I think, came through in the speech. And uh, lots of uh, like-minded people wanted to have a conversation with him. Has this made you think about future events as well? Is this, are these the kind of places you want to be at? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the challenge for a company like us is to get your name out there. I think once people understand what it is we can provide for their businesses, they're genuinely interested. It's a very expensive thing to be able to get your name out there, though, and you can meet so many potential buyers in a very concentrated area and time if you come to these sort of events. So I, it, it's something that we will certainly look at doing more of in the future. Yeah, well, brilliant. And uh, yeah, well, just to say, it's been great being on your stand, seeing, your, you. seeing your guys, well, how they interact. So well, it's, it's been, been nice having a bit of glamour on the stand. So, <laughs> so thank, thanks, Paul. Yeah, Gary, thank you very much. Thank you, too. 
I hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the 2023 AI and Big Data Expo. Thanks to all my guests for their time and insights and to Xfluency for hosting us on their stand and partnering with the podcast. If you've enjoyed these interviews and you'd like to contribute to the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on LinkedIn and our other social media channels. All of the links can be found at csuitepodcast.com, where you can also catch up with our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me, Graham Barrett, and the C-Suite Podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.